Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, and thanks for tuning in to the 2019 Highlights episode. I'm going to share some of the best uh, episodes from the year, little bits and pieces from um, about 15 different conversations. 2019 has been a great year for the podcast. Uh, I published 28 episodes and passed uh, 5,000 downloads overall and 70 episodes total. Uh, the most listened to episode this year was the Day in the Life show, which got over 210 listens, and then Father O'Brien got about 170. Uh, the other people within the top five were Joe Gopinot, uh, Bill Stevens, and Anthony Hazard. So go ahead and listen to those shows if you haven't already. Um, interestingly enough, 74 uh people listened from Spain, so I don't really know what's going on there. Or maybe one person from Spain listened 74 times. If you're listening from Spain, my warmest greetings. Okay, so I was thinking about a theme for this episode for this year, and what came to mind was the ingredients of transformation, kind of thinking about the question, what leads to to transformation? What leads to educational, career, spiritual, or personal uh, growth, evolution, transformation. Uh, 2019 was a big year of of personal transformation for me. I got back from studying abroad in Italy and traveling around Europe late last December, um, and then starting in January, uh, I felt that like a lot of a lot of the religious beliefs and relationships around me I had a lot of uh, doubts, and those continued through spring. And then in the summer, I was in in India and participated in the Global Social Benefit Fellowship, which was a, a great uh, decentering, as uh, Father Kevin O'Brien would would say, a decentering experience um, that allowed me to kind of think about my place in the world, my career. I did a lot of career thinking throughout the year, decided I wanted to pursue consulting, and then in the fall uh, landed a, a job. So that's exciting for after graduation. Um, yeah, so throughout this year, I've been thinking about what are the ingredients to to transformation. Um, and I think we can learn a lot from the guests this year. So there, there's a couple themes that I think answer this question of the ingredients to personal transformation. Uh, the first is broadening your experience, which commonly happens through travel, but sometimes happens through challenges life throws your way. So that's kind of the first theme that We'll look at through uh, Bill Stevens, Tanya Bunger, Heather Clydesdale, and then several people from the Immersions Program. In the second little phase, we'll transition into how students have personally grown and transformed throughout their college experience and what the, the catalyst to those moments have been. Next, we'll look at how transformation doesn't always happen in one big travel experience. It can happen slowly because of the questions you ask yourself, because of the reflection you do upon your own actions and values, and by thinking about your own story and giving it moral weight. So those are uh, the next set of interviews. And then towards the second half, we'll touch on injustice. And two big areas there were uh, racial injustice and climate change. So 
uh, Robin Nelson and Anthony Hazard touch on race relations, and then Kristen Kasanovich and Pauline Loxon Cantor touch on uh, dance and the arts and how that can be used for self-expression and social change, and then uh, Kristen Kasanovich specifically talking about climate change. And that's a lot of heavy stuff, so we'll close out this episode with a poem by a a student who graduated last year, Riley O'Connell. So uh, yeah, overall, I think you'll really love the breadth and depth of um, the little bits and pieces from this episode. So without further ado, here it is. Uh, Happy New Year, and I'll see you early in 2020 for another uh, great series of, of conversations and lots of new and exciting stuff. So here we go. All right, first up, here's Bill Stevens, who is on the music faculty at Santa Clara. We'll intro him in with one of his own songs. Do you think Becoming Blind changed your relationship with music? Uh, I'm sure it did. I mean, but but largely in a sense of it changed my relationship to so many other things. Hmm. That music was one of those things that it didn't have to to completely change my relationship with. So it was it was it, in some ways there was a process of elimination going on. Um, I mean, I, I was very interested in mathematics, uh, very interested in, in uh, you know anything to do with computers. Almost you know double majored in math in college. Around the time that, that I lost my vision, we were actually doing fairly advanced trigonometry. And doing that when you can't look at the page is, is a little challenging. So, mm-hmm. so my mother and I would, would spend hours a day, you know, usually while we're waiting in the doctor's office at, at eye doctors, because I was in and out of the doctor's office pretty much you know, twice a week that year. And, um, you know, my mother is a, a fairly intuitive person, so she'd be trying to describe these graphs, like saying, okay, imagine a snake wrapped around a stick. And I'd say, okay, mom, does the X, does the graph start in the fourth quadrant or the third quadrant? And where does it cross the y-axis? And is it concave up here? And, you know, it's, and, and it took us a while to work out a system, you know, but it basically meant that I was, I was memorizing all my work uh, as we went, um, and and it, it worked well enough. I, mean, I got through uh, calculus one, two, three by the end of high school, um, and and um, uh, actually calculus three was really fun because that's when things become really physical, visual, and and ironically, I'm I'm primarily a visual learner. I'm primarily a visual thinker. Uh, so my relationship to sound is is largely visual. I hear notes and I'm seeing uh, color associations, not uh, kind of literally, but mostly imaginative. Um, you know, um, and uh, you know, so if I can see a note, you know, then I can say, oh well, that's a G and that's a D flat and that's a B flat, you know, etc. Et um, you know, yeah, what is it? What is it like to see a note? Because I feel, yeah. like, I feel like it's almost like people who have vision maybe aren't as good at at both hearing and visualizing because they can rely so much. It's, on it's interesting that the the folks that I've heard, you know, that I've talked to who have what's known as perfect pitch, um, tend to associate notes with colors. Uh, yeah, so one of my colleagues does this. Um, of course, my colors and his colors don't all match up, right? You know, but but it gets blurry and messy because the sound of a G on a piano is going to be very different than the sound of a G on a violin, right? Because because violins for me are are generally red, and and piano notes are generally white, 
but then there's the color association with the different notes and 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 it, 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 so it's it's um i wish there was a way that i could just kind of print it out and give someone that experience but that there's no way to do that and it's and it's it's in some ways more layered than that i i I do this with uh, letters, you know, so letters of the alphabet have, have color associations. There was once when I was talking to someone on the phone, he, he was giving me information about a, a conference I was about to go to years ago. And, um, and when we got off the phone, I was like, okay, I, I don't remember his name, but f- from the color of his voice, I'm guessing that his name is Alan. Not because people named Alan have voices that sound a certain way, but because the first information that he gave me was, hi, my name is Alan. And okay, that's so A is kind of an orange and yeah, or the L is, is sort of a soft green and then another A and then the N is a, a darker green. And, and all of my perception of the sound of his voice was coming through the filter of the colors of his name. And, and I did meet him a week later and he's, oh, you know, hi Bill, it's Alan, we spoke on the phone, right? I was like, oh, you know, who knew, right? You know, that that, 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 that was in fact, uh, was in fact his name. So it, it um, you know, the brain is pretty remarkable, right? I don't get a lot of visual stimulation. And so that, that part of the brain tends to be fairly active for me in, in imaginative ways and has just gotten sort of cross-linked with um, ideas and, and shapes and, and uh, sounds, etc. Next up, we have a clip from global business consultant and professor Tanya Monsef Bunker. And I, I read that you spent a year in Turkey. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So what was your experience like there? And did you, I guess, what, what did you discover about yourself and your career and what you wanted to do moving forward? So I, um, I don't do every year, I don't do a, uh, a New Year's resolution, but I pick one word every year and I design my whole year around that word. And um, that year that I went, which was in 2012, uh, was called Freedom. And so for me, it was seeing, I've lived in the Silicon Valley my whole life. I live about a half a mile from my parents. My children mm-hmm. live in the area. Um, I have a very strong network of people here. Um, but I I was, I wanted to see what it would be like to live outside of that, that comfort of everybody knowing me, um, of, of people already knowing who I am before I even meet them. Mm-hmm. And so I, that's really, for me, what I really discovered in my time living in Turkey was who was I really and, and mm-hmm. getting more in touch with that. My kids were grown and in college, so I didn't have to worry about, you know, mothering. I could, I could really just be an independent woman living abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, so Turkey for me was ideal. Um, I lived in Istanbul, which is half in the West, half of Istanbul is in Europe and half is in Asia. Um, I'm, I'm actually, that's actually my heritage is half West, half East. So it was the perfect city for me to live in. Um, and I, I did work there working with women, uh, running women's programs there. Um, I had clients all around the world. I had clients in Morocco and Kenya and the U.S. So it didn't matter geographically where I lived. Um, but I really spent a year exploring the culture, exploring who I was in that culture, mm. um, and just seeing the world differently. It was, um, you mentioned that you you um, studied abroad, right? And, and you probably had that experience where you get to see yourself in a very different way. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really passionate about about bringing different perspectives to anything you do. And and so I kind of walk the walk, I guess, or talk the, walk the talk by living there. Yeah. What have a couple other words been from either previous years or this year? So one year I did a year of adventure. 
So I did everything from like rock climbing to surfing, just trying all kinds of new things that I had never done before. Um, one year I did a year of creativity. So I wanted to bring more creativity into my life. So I did jewelry making and I, I um, took guitar lessons and mm-hmm. uh, went to concerts and just went to more art exhibits. And so I kind of, I, I designed my life you know, really intentionally around that word for that year. Hmm. And the word seems to come to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that is, but it's somehow it comes to me. Uh, this year, my word is, uh, it's actually to wonder and discovery. Hmm. I feel like I'm on the verge again of another pivot, another change. And I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. And so I'm um, out there kind of looking at new things and with a state of wonder and discovery to see hmm. what might show up and what might, what might be my next thing Hmm. i don't know what it's going to be you at at this point in your career have so many opportunities and you've obviously said yes to a lot of them because you're you know on like 10 different boards or whatever and have so many different involvements but like how do you make decisions about how to spend your time or about what's like important to focus on or like you said you're in a process of kind of like discovery and so what is i don't know how does that look for you so i am involved in a lot of things and i have a huge global network and so it does make it a little challenging sometimes and trying to decide when do you say yes and when do you say no um so what i have done is i've picked three words that i think that i use to discern opportunities so when an opportunity comes to me i think will this will this speak to kind of who I think I am? And my three words are global. So I like to do anything that has a global perspective. Um, anything that has community involvement. I don't like to work alone. I like to be surrounded by people who who challenge me and who I can kind of partner with. And then the last is leadership. So anything that either um, advances leadership in others or advances my leadership or I, I like the idea of like conscientious leadership, right? Mm-hmm. Is kind of advancing, advancing that in the world. I'm I'm on board. So for me, like the Global Fellows Program is a home run, right? Mm-hmm. I, I get all three in that. I mean, I have a global perspective. Um, I work with an amazing group of students and partners around the world, and it's all about leadership. Like, who? What's a leadership development for our students? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that's like a home run. It's easy to mm-hmm. do that. Um, and sometimes I get maybe two of those. I don't get all three. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do. I do work with um, entrepreneurs here in the Silicon Valley, but I do that kind of in in kind of startup lab kind of environments. So mm-hmm. it's community and there's leadership involved in that. Sometimes global, not always global, um, but that's kind of the way that I choose to do it. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I've been doing the last couple of years and is is including myself in that conversation. So making sure that there's enough time for myself and mm-hmm. I'm really thinking about self-care. Mm-hmm. So how do I stay healthy so that um, I can be the best that I can be and be of service in the world? Another way we can be of service to the world and to ourselves is to learn about other cultures. And the Emergence Program through the Ignatian Center at Santa Clara does just that, putting on one or two week trips to all kinds of places from right in our backyard in San Jose all the way uh, internationally in Africa or South America. In this clip, you're going to hear three members of the Immersion staff. First, Kayla Wells, then Charles Mansour, then Valerie Sarma. Great. So maybe could could someone share a story um, of an immersion and what that was like and what impact that had on you or what you saw in the community you visited? 
Sure. Yeah. I'd love to talk about a couple of my immersion experiences. I think that each immersion that I've been on, and it's been a couple by now, uh, layers onto each other. And uh, one story in particular that I think about when I think about immersion is being in India um, and going to Mother Teresa's home for the dying and destitute. And upon initially walking in, seeing, you know, the children and the women and the men that had really been outcast from society and their communities. And just the reality of that is pretty heavy. And stepping into that as a student group and really kind of grappling with what does it mean to be displaced and outcast from your communities? And how do these people find love and care in their lives? And do they deserve that? Of course. Um, And how can we maybe provide some of that in the next hour, two hours that we're spending with them on immersion? Um, And it became, you know, so much more than that as we sat together and struggled to communicate in Hindi and our limited uh, vocabulary. But just the connection that we were able to have beyond language um, was really important and impactful for all of us. I sat down with one woman and, you know, was asking her, you know, if I could sit with her and spend some time and without language and just looking in each other's eyes, um, I was really able to see her full humanity and her dignity and how awful it must be to have been left by her family. And um, just really wanting to honor the fact that sitting there in front of me and I saw it so clearly more than I've ever seen it, uh, God sitting right in front of me. And it's some of these concepts that I had heard about before um, on my immersion to Ecuador. They talk about seeing the face of Christ um, and those we meet. And that was, you know, months later when it all came to fruition for me and really made sense. And I was able to sense that presence and that dignity and that uh, really that grace and that divine presence in the person in front of me. And we just shared that moment and it really exemplifies to me how you can have really powerful moments beyond language, beyond um, anything that we expected um, in spaces that might at first feel uncomfortable, but really have divine grace within them as well. Well, I think what Kayla's story points out, uh, Valerie hinted at this at the beginning, is part of the focus of our program is, is not to do things for people, but rather to be present with them. Um, and that real experience of accompaniment, that word that keeps coming up in solidarity. Um, you know, there are a lot of projects that are out there that are oriented towards service or giving a community with less privileged access to opportunity, something that we have that they don't. And that's wonderful and fine um, and great. Um, our hope and our focus for our program is actually that the people that we encounter actually become our teachers. Um, they become that presence of God that Kayla's talking about. And they become the holder of wisdom, the holder of truth that we can learn from. And it's harder to do that when we come from the place of we are the privileged, we are the ones with advantages, we are the ones that are coming into your space to, to offer you something. And so that real that real presence to the other is, it's a really humbling experience for us. Um, and it's a real moment of transformation um, in, in relationship building, even if it's only for a short while, you know, a, a 30 minute conversation, uh, two minutes of eye contact, it's, it's really transformational. Um, and the change is really um, long-term, it's, it's long impact for us. 
And so, uh, again, the hope is that that we're focusing on that that real moment with that person rather than us coming in and providing some service. Thank you for sharing those beautiful stories. I think I see also the development, Kayla and Charles, that you've done with the program for getting students ready for this kind of experience of what it really means to connect with other people in their own suffering. And the formation that you've provided for students really invites them to think about where have I experienced struggle or pain or suffering in my own life? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that's a big piece of what it means to then be able to sit with other people and um, in that space and to really be um, with people in that space of compassion. Yeah, thank you. One one of the things that we've talked about a lot, and we've used this word more commonly in, in the last several months, is we want the immersion experience, and not just the seven, ten days, two weeks that you're on immersion, but the whole process to be we are calling it an interruption, um, a moment of self-reflection, self-exploration, relationship building and community with the folks that you're going on immersion with. Valerie mentioned there are usually about 10 students that go on immersion with you. Um, It's a time for real community building. um, And like I said, real introspection, self-reflection, and really asking those hard questions of ourselves to say, what has my life been that's led me to this po- this moment? Not just my privilege, not just the wonderful things in my life, but what have been the struggles and the tensions, uh, my own experiences of, of marginalization? Um, who am I as a person and who can I become through this process of accompaniment with the people on my immersion and then the communities that we're visiting? Um, and, you know, that's why the, the Monday preparation meetings are so critical because we don't want students just coming into these communities uninformed and sort of exploiting them as this moment of here we are to learn from you and then we leave and then it doesn't mean anything. So we want it to be a holistic experience from the moment of the application process until years and years after. Um, And of course, we only have the privilege of accompanying students in the initial journey on immersion and, and a little bit after, but the hope is that that transformation continues long after. There's such a power in us being able to see something firsthand. And when I think about immersion experiences, that's one of the ways in which they invite us in, right? And it's also about the stories, right? Really coming to understand our own story, the story of our kind of companions and the stories of the communities. Um, And at the end of that, we're holding those stories, right? We, We move forward in the world holding all of that, right? And so our hope is that it connects us all. Um, that, that kind of sense of Mother Teresa talks about we belong to each other, right? That we move forward really living into what that means. Building on the theme of international experience, next up we have Heather Clydesdale, who is an adjunct lecturer in the art history department focusing on Chinese art history and archaeology, and she's talking about what uh, Western culture can learn from Eastern culture. Are, Are there any other examples you can think of of things that people in the United States could learn from these Eastern philosophies or traditions or countries that you've been to and studied? There's a lot to learn. Actually, with China, I feel like there's a natural... It's kind of cool that Chinese culture and American culture is um, very complementary in a way, I find, at least for what it's brought to my life, but I also think on a larger level. For instance, China has this you know, 5,000 years of history. It's the um, its language system is the longest one in continuous use in the world. Um, and uh, this kind of longest continuous civilization. Um, 
so there's there's a strong emphasis on tradition and American culture is all about disruption and change and everything new all the time. And I think that putting those together, you actually see that looking back to tradition, and I feel so strongly about this, looking back to history, looking back to tradition is what can make you creative. It's very hard to be creative in a vacuum. You're usually just flailing and maybe your ideas are not that good. But when you have 5,000 years of history to draw upon, whether that's... Um, Anything as simple as writing a Chinese character, you have to follow the stroke order. It does take a lot of discipline. And both of my kids learn Chinese from a very young age, but I would really struggle with them with their homework and um, make them do their characters according to the the stroke order, not just any way they want it. But there's a, a certain um, power that comes from drawing upon and connecting with 5,000 years of writing when you do the character the right way. That's a great feeling of power. Um, I also think when one is thinking about personal liberty versus uh, more social responsibility, you can have a, a really interesting way of approaching those issues if you're taking both a standard American view and a traditional Chinese view, if there is one, um, to, to the table on that. All right, now we'll hear from a couple students. First up is Joe Gopinat, who graduated this past year in 2019, talking about self-empowerment and eco-fashion. Are there any ways you've maybe improved over the course of your college career at like managing stress or balancing all those different things? Because a lot of, if you do a, you know, a survey of students at Santa Clara, I'm sure most of them will say they're stressed or anxious about something oh, yeah. school related. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, so just being fully transparent, I do have a lot of mental health struggles that I have struggled with for quite a long time. So it's important to be there for myself just as much as I am for others and my commitments. And so I realized really quickly, if I don't have energy to be there for others, then the real problem is the fact that I just don't have energy. I don't, I haven't been feeding the flame. I've been exhausting it. Um, it's like the, it's the analogy of the car. A car can drive forever once you fill up the gas, but then you got to fill up the gas again. So who's going to fill up the gas in my tank? And I realized I've got to be that person. So it was, it was when I went to Bolivia for Global Fellows that I realized my career is going to take me all sorts of places. And my support system, my mom, my sister, my good friends are not going to be there with me physically every step of the way. But who's going to be there? It's going to be me. So mm-hmm. I need to be able to be my own biggest cheerleader. And um, I was actually having a really hard time with mental health, especially when I was the first two weeks I was in Bolivia. I slipped to a place I hadn't been in a while. And I realized I had come so far emotionally and physically to <laughs> not... You know, I'd flown all the way to Bolivia, but also I had worked so hard to get to a place of confidence. And um, I kind of turned it around, started immersing myself in the community, in the city. And I really, um, I really made a point of making the most out of that experience. And that's, I think that's what, it was the, my mindset that changed totally. So my sophomore year, I was pretty stressed out. I had a lot of really hard classes. And then I went to Bolivia and my mindset changed completely. And I realized my best is all I can do. There's no point getting stressed over anything more because if I'm doing the max I can do, it's kind of unrealistic of me to expect any more out of me. So being patient with myself is something I still work on, but that's how I've been 
trying to work on the anxiety and the stress. Mm -hmm. And I will get panic attacks every so often. That's just kind of what happens. And I will get overwhelmed. But at the end of the day, all you can do is your best. And all you can put out there is you. So you can't really expect any more out of yourself. Kind of getting at where your interest in eco-fashion started, mm-hmm. I read that your grandmother had a really big influence oh, yeah. on your life. So yeah, you so, want to say something about that? Yeah, so Indians are very family-oriented. I'm just going to put it like that. Um, my grandma was born in Malaysia, and she was raised in Singapore. And she moved to India to marry my grandpa. And... It's funny because at their wedding, their siblings met and fell in love and then moved back to Singapore. So I have family in Singapore and in India. And she is just, I think I get a lot of my sass from her. Uh, She's quite the spitfire. Uh, She's a lot like my mom. My mom is too. And I see a lot of my grandma and my mom. And I realize that I see a lot of my mom in me. And so by the transitive property, I guess I'm a lot like my grandma. But she is just five foot nothing, wispy silver hair. Like, it's not even gray. It's silver. (laughs) And she's always got eyeliner on. Kajal, the Indian version of eyeliner. You wear it on your waterline. She somehow just permanently has it on. And her eyes are so beautiful. And they're always sparkling, especially when she sees chocolate or dessert. (laughs) They're always sparkling. And when she came to visit us, she she came often. Now she's pretty old. She's pushing 80 now. And she used to come visit us when I was younger. She used to use the sewing machine to sew clothes for my Barbie dolls. And I used to watch her. Like, first of all, the hum of a sewing machine is probably my favorite sound in the world. It's something that instantly calms me. And it just brings something out of me that fosters creativity but also calm. It's a very interesting feeling. But watching her sew... Um, you know, tying her sari behind her back. It's always bright red. She wears the brightest colors and tying her hair back and um, and just sewing and creating something for me that started two-dimensional and then turned into something that just had its own shape. Like it's almost, it, was, it wasn't even three-dimensional. Like it was, uh, it was just, it was magic. Like, <laughs> and I grew up, my parents are both engineers, so I understand that there's a lot of things in this world that are created that have so much power. And, you know, I, I used to get excited the same way at the tech museum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the same way I used to be like, oh, my God, electricity. Like I, I get excited very easily. But watching my grandma do that with something that wasn't math or science related, which is what my parents knew, it was it was very interesting. And then next thing you know, I was like, oh, teach me how to sew. And she was like, okay, I'll teach you. So I, I learned just the basics, the stitches, and uh, creating little buttonholes, stuff like that. I would help her. I would design the outfits. I was always sketching uh, in my notebooks, in my math notebook. I'd do the math homework, of course, but I'd also be sketching. And then I started taking classes on my own, and I started doing eco-fashion. So I started turning old things into new. So not necessarily starting from scratch, which I think is creative in its own right, but taking things that had been forgotten for a while and turning them into something new and beautiful, hmm. which is kind of how I've taken approach to life, too. Hmm. I think when you feel like something has grown old, or something is just too tiring to use anymore, we tend to throw it out, whether that be emotional or actual physical things. And I think there's something so powerful about turning something unused, forgotten, into something brand new and something beautiful. And so I started to do that at a time that was really hard for me. And it was my creative outlet 
that made me feel like I was doing something productive. Mm -hmm. It made me feel like I had worth, I had value, I had talent. And so that really helped me turn around in a very dark time in my life. And it made me see just the amount of beautiful things I could create. And, you know, maybe if I create all these beautiful things, maybe I too am beautiful. You know, it was it was that kind of a, almost looking in a mirror at what I create. Maybe it's a reflection of who I am as a person. So that it provided a, a lifeline for quite a while. And then it turned into creativity when I started to, you know, really feel the effects of what I was doing and, and what I was creating. And... Then when I went to Bolivia, it was a great, great jump in the career to actually be able to design for a fashion company. And that's when I realized, you know, I have the unique understanding of not only knowing the final product, the fashion it's going to be created in, but I also have the science and math background to understand the technology that goes into creating fashion, especially these really cool materials that are coming on the market, like eco-friendly or smart textiles, like that can measure heart rate and stuff like that. And and I realize I'm the unique combination of these two extremes. And I would be remiss if I didn't shoot my shot at the middle route as my career. And it came also at a time that I realized I did not like the major I was in. Mm. I was a bioe, but I. I don't like bio anymore. So <laughs> it was a very interesting time. I was floating for a really long time and I was unhappy to say the least. That's a huge understatement. I was I was unhappy and I felt like I wasn't having much academic purpose mm-hmm. and I didn't know what I wanted to do until as I mentioned going to Bolivia and realizing that I don't want to just design with these materials. I want to make the materials themselves. And that's when I started looking into programs for grad school in textile engineering, fiber science, and and the like. Mm-hmm. And I guess now I'm going to do it. So, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, out of out of these confusing moments, I think, has... Now that I... Yeah, wow. Me just explaining this to you right now, I realize in some of my most confusing and hard moments, I've made decisions that have only made me stronger and made me realize what I want out of life. So... Mm. I'm very thankful for the experiences I've gone after that have honestly all the experiences that I've gone after here at Santa Clara, whether that be on campus with I'm I'm a Hackworth fellow right now for the Marcula Center that's been teaching me so much or global fellows or study abroad. Every single one I've made a conscious effort to put myself out of my comfort zone because the only way you grow is when you're uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not growing, then I'm stagnant. And I don't like the idea of not of not being the best version of myself. Hmm. And so that's that's kind of how I try to approach taking it back to the idea of daily life. Mm-hmm. If if I can end the day being proud of something I did or having shown myself love in some way, and I'm going to be real with you, I actually keep a journal and I write down how I show myself love every day and I realize I'm pretty shitty at it. <laughs> and um, if I can end the day saying that I did something that made me proud of me, me mm-hmm. then... I'm doing the right thing. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how I try to approach every opportunity I get and every person I meet and everything I do. And hopefully, you know, that that turns things around, makes me a happier, more self-possessed woman. Mm-hmm. And I think it's working, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, that's, that's just kind of my approach to every day. Mm-hmm. 
Now we have another 2019 graduate, uh, Gen Kimura. Gen is another uh, person who participated in the Global Fellows Program. Um, Joe Gopinat did as well, and that program is run by Tanya Bunker, who you already heard from. Here's Gen talking a little bit about writing. And were, were you interested in writing at that time as well, or is that something you've developed more? I think since I, the beginning of college. Yeah, since the beginning of college as well. Yeah, like I said, I think I was very narrow-minded coming into college, you know, soccer, soccer, soccer. But writing definitely has become a lot more of a passion for me. I actually used to hate doing, like, essays. I hated doing – I still kind of do, but um, I think writing for fun and being able to express, like, your own ideas on paper and for anyone who can, you know, at least read English can read it is, I think, a powerful avenue. So mm-hmm. find a lot of value in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it seems like there are so many like, changes that have happened over the last four years, right? Like you're, you're a senior now and you came in, you know, you're playing soccer, you maybe want to go to med school after college and now you're like writing an international business and like what, what about the Santa Clara experience like changed those things in you? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I think just being exposed to so many different kinds of people, whether it be from you know, from around the country to even met some people from, you know, internationally that have come here. And I think what Santa Clara does really well is, I guess it's kind of part of like the liberal arts education and, you know, you know, kind of forcing you to take different kinds of courses. And I think through that, I was able to kind of find like, oh, like this, this interests me or like, hey, like this, you know, it's fine. Like speaking Spanish is something that actually interests me. But no, this type of courses don't. I think I actually find a lot of value in that because how are you going to know what your passions are unless you like at least try it once. Right. So mm-hmm. I think from that, um, I I think I think I've really been able to expand my interests and really find like my true passions. This next snippet is from a more recent conversation I had with business professor Joellen Posner about how your actions can align with your values. Enjoy. But I'd, I'd love to touch on this kind of idea of, of students thinking about their, their future careers. I feel like many students... Uh, feel like they have to fit into a very narrow set of potential career options and that they they maybe don't have a lot of agency in, in choosing those um, and just want to accept anything that comes their way. Um, additionally, I, I think most people look at maybe the, the prestige of the company or the, the job role and if it's something attainable, but I don't think many students are thinking about organizational culture. So whether it's related to the the culture of the companies you're looking at or just like ways that students should be thinking about their future careers. Um, yeah. What, what would you say around those two areas? Yeah. I think this is a really important um, uh, cue that we, that undergrads in particular, but honestly, MBAs do mm-hmm. the same thing. We don't, we just don't pay enough attention to them because we probably don't think that deeply about them. It's true when you're finishing school, whatever level you're worried about getting a job about, you know, paying back your loans and making sure that you have enough money to live and all of that. And it's reasonable. Um, and also prestige clearly plays a role in our decision-making. It's very easy to get, um, 
you know, starry-eyed about working for a, a firm that you admire, uh, you know, whose products you admire, whose name is well known. Um, but I, I want to come back to the idea that we need to understand our own values and really know who we are. And and if we're conscious and thoughtful about what's important to us as individual people, and everybody's values are different from each other's, right? And whatever values you have are legitimate and important to you. That's the most important thing. Um, the if we're if we're not thinking uh, about our um, employment through the lens of those values, it's very easy to get into either a mismatch or get involved with a company that's going to lead us to a, a different way of thinking that we might not really be okay with. And because that happens slowly um, and gradually, we're often not attentive to it until it's too late. So what do I mean by that? College is probably your most idealistic time in life, right? You have the whole world in front of you and you're exploring all kinds of ideas and, and possibilities, and that's really exciting. And this is where you um, start to become who you really are. Um, so the the values that drive you uh, in college are really important to um, to you not just now but in the future, right? If this is becoming who you who you really are, then it's worthwhile taking stock of what that means to you. What what do you think is important? Is integrity really important to you? Is is profitability really important to you? Is family really important to you? Is it about justice or fairness or competition or individualism, all of those are reasonable values, right? And and whatever array of uh, of, of values we hold, that's what makes us who, who we are. There's no reason for us to say that's not an appropriate set of values or to try to change that. It is worth understanding what those values are. So if you take a couple of minutes and, and just jot down the top three or maybe five things that you think are really important, you'll get a sense of what those values are. Are right if you haven't taken the time to think about it already, which again I don't think most people do. So it's a useful um, kind of emotional and and self knowledge exercise to engage in. Those values tell you what you think is important in life, and you will be the most fulfilled and the most successful in a career if you find a, an organization, a company, a nonprofit, whatever it is, that shares similar values. Because the culture of that company is built on those values, its values, and the, that organizational culture determines how you make decisions on a day-to-day -day basis, how you interact with your clients, with your customers, with your coworkers, with your suppliers, with the environment, with with the um, social context in which you're operating, with local communities, right? All of those stakeholders are impacted by the values of whatever organization you're working for. So if you think that environmental sustainability is really, really important, and you go to work for a firm that doesn't really care about it, mm -hmm you are going to be doing things and engaging with stakeholders in a way that's inconsistent with your personal values. That's probably going to make you less than happy. Mm -hmm. And it's also going to, over time, erode your commitment to those personal values. Now, obviously, growth and change through adulthood, right, is appropriate. Um, you're not going to be the same person at 45 that you are at 20. Mm -hmm. But if these things are really meaningful and important to you, then you should think about which ones you're willing to compromise and which ones you're not, mm -hmm. and to make choices that are consistent with those those decisions, right? Mm -hmm. If environmental sustainability is really a core value of yours, but family friendliness is not, you know, you can live with seeing 
the children that you might someday have only at seven o'clock at night for an hour before they go to bed. That's a legitimate choice that maybe that's less important to you. You know, you're willing to compromise on that, but you're not about environmental sustainability. Then it's really important for you to go to a firm Mm -hmm. that has a real demonstrable commitment to sustainability. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is that it's hard to really understand what those values are just by looking at marketing materials. Um, both consumer marketing materials and employment marketing materials. And so it's worthwhile as you're um, looking for for jobs and thinking about who you might want to work with, um, asking questions that get the folks that you're interviewing with or informational interviewing with to reveal something about how those values are lived in real time in in organizational life. Um, So for example, family friendliness is one that's important to me because I have little kids. Um, If I go into an organization that says it's a family-friendly firm, and I don't see pictures of anybody's kids, I know that they're lying, right? Mm-hmm. It's very easy to say, we really care about you and you and want you to have a, a happy family life. But if nobody feels comfortable like letting the rest of the people in the firm know that they actually have children that they go home to at 7, 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night, then that's not really a family-friendly company. They don't really care about mm-hmm. your balance. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing a little bit of extra legwork to really interrogate whether the, um, the, the marketing of this organization matches its lived reality is mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. And again, you can't really do that effectively unless you know your own value system really well. So mm-hmm. it needs to start from thinking about what's important to you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think one of my bigger takeaways from this conversation is just the link between um, like business values and your own personal values, whether that's in your everyday purchases or the, the company you're, you're going to work for. It's been a real joy this past year to get to know uh, Father Kevin O'Brien, who's the new university president. I did a conversation with him back in May before he became president and have gotten to chat with him quite a bit since then. Uh, It was a really popular episode, and here's a couple of the best snippets. A lot of students during college are going through this process of kind of career discernment and figuring out what they want to do with their lives. And there's a lot of competing, I guess, desires and opportunities. And um, during college, students do have, Santa Clara offers many ways for them to get get off campus, visit different countries, do internships. But then once you move towards senior year and you you face the real world, job applications and all these things, it can be scary. And I feel like it can be easy to kind of leave your your values that you've kind of built up behind and just want any job that comes your way. So kind of how can students think about a career discernment process and like, will it all be okay in the end for all the nervous seniors? (laughs) So I could say to them, it will, it will be okay (laughs) Uh if they stay true to who they are and what I hope we've taught them here. You know, in the end, we want, uh, we, we want to be authentic and to be authentic simply means that what we do flows from the deepest sense of who we are. That's really authenticity or integrity, if you want. Mm-hmm. And, and to put you know, a religious lens on it, that I think that's how God, that's God creates us to be authentic. God wants us to be who God made us to be. God mm-hmm. calls us to live and to be in a certain way. And the more authentic we are, the more I think God is delighted. Mm-hmm. And the more happier, happier we are, we're at peace. Because sometimes life is hard and we're not always happy, but... Deep down, we're at peace. So I think we want to be authentic. So I think we need to know who we are and what we stand for and what matters most. 
Mm-hmm. And that's a lifelong process. I'm still figuring it out at my age of mm-hmm. um, in my 50s. You know, I'm still mm-hmm. trying to figure it out. But I got a much better sense of who I was when I graduated from college. Mm-hmm. So one is to, to, to put yourself into experiences at Santa Clara where you, you test yourself, you, put, you descent to yourself, you put yourself out of your comfort zone, you learn from people different than yourself. You have quiet and solitude enough to reflect on what you were doing and who you're becoming. So you really understand, like, who am I most fundamentally? Mm-hmm. Um, and to to really honor that. Uh, and part of that identity is, you know, our, our what we're meant to do, what we're good at, mm-hmm. right? So there's a, uh, there's a professor at Boston College, Mike, uh, Michael Himes, who has three questions when addressed with this vocation question or mm-hmm. what do I do with my life question. Mm-hmm. He says, ask yourself three questions. What... Um, what gives me joy? Am I good at it? And does the world need it? Mm-hmm. Which I think are three great questions. What gives me joy? Mm-hmm. That is deep down. Again, joy is not is not just fleeting happiness. It, deep down, I, I'm joyful. I'm most myself. Mm-hmm. Am I good at it? Because sometimes, you know, what we really feel passionate about, we need to have the natural <laughs> gifts for, which mm-hmm. is... Um, I wish, yeah, I wish I'd love to be Bono and have a band like you too, but I can't sing, so it's not going to work. I can do other things mm-hmm. that he can't. Um, and then last one, does the world need it? Because I think um, we God gives us a lot of different talents. So part of it is just choosing. Like, I got to do something. I need to make a choice. Mm-hmm. And often I think, I think and I, I don't think this is a question a lot, of, a lot of us ask enough is, what does the world need more? I could do this or that or this. Well, which, all all things being equal, I'm good at them all. I could like, but what does the world need? Mm-hmm. And so that, I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm a, I'm a Jesuit. Mm-hmm. Because I answer those three questions in a certain way. And I also want to say, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with um, you know, getting a job that, that pays well. Because, you know, you may have to pay back student loans. Or you may need to take care of your family. I mean... That's okay. Provide you know why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Just to do it, to make a lot of money, is not going to make you happy. But mm-hmm. to make money in order to do something with it that's good for you and others, that's different. Mm-hmm. But money alone, it's true, will not buy happiness. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing wrong with earning money in order to take care of yourselves and others, to use it in the right way, which will allow you to uh, to serve well and to, to be the person you're meant to be. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I'd, I'd love to touch on uh, spirituality a, a little bit more. So you wrote a book called The Ignatian Adventure. And I think when when students think of their college experience, the word adventure might come to mind, right? This time right. of growth and change. But usually um, that word adventure isn't associated with uh, church, right? So right. how can spirituality be, be like an adventure? adventure? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's how I describe my life. And this would again apply to anyone, Christian or mm-hmm. Hindu or Jewish or Muslim or, or whatever, even just a person sort of seeking. I mean, they're, they're demographically in the U.S., and, and, and we see this on this campus, more and more students identify as, as, uh, w- with no particular religious affiliation. This could mean that they, they have none or they have multiple ones or they just don't know. Mm-hmm. They're sort of working it out, which I think is, I mean, some people may get nervous about that. I actually, I think it's a great opportunity because I think it, that, that openness, that exploration, I think, is really great. And what a great place to do that on a Jesuit college campus where we give students the freedom to question. 
But what we're offering, though, are multiple, you know, different ways of, of, of addressing those questions. We're not running away from answering those questions, but we're saying these are these questions are serious and what are they saying and what might we offer you to to meet your the needs you're expressing so i think um i, I think in the human person is built to question mm-hmm. um i think that shows that uh one is not only alive intellectually but spiritually mm-hmm. so um i think it's natural to describe uh, one who questions as one who's on an adventure because you if your question is sincere and not just rhetorical if your question is not is really open and not simply meant to sort of catch someone or tear someone down. That you're going to be you're going to you're going to be really open to new experiences to grow in a way you hadn't before. So I think as long as we take the questions of students seriously, and one of you know religiously, one of the ways we do that is let's present to them what the religious traditions have offered as answers to those questions. Because mm-hmm. questions that you're many of the questions you you may rephrase them differently than I did uh, as an undergrad, but I bet there are a lot of them are the same. And frankly, there are probably a lot of questions were answered 100, asked 100 years ago, mm-hmm. though maybe the questions weren't permitted as much as they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that's really an exciting thing, place to happen, not just in a classroom, in a theology class, but also outside of class, mm-hmm. um, and not to be afraid of the question. Mm-hmm. I, think that, that's, I think God made us that way. And uh, it shows that one's faith, even someone who comes in with a deep faith and then finds himself struggling, I think it, it's it, to assure them it's okay. Like your questions are not a lack of faith. They actually show that a faith is alive. So, and then some people bring a lot of conviction or great examples to people. I, and that's great. But I, I, I certainly went through a lot of questioning when I was in college. Mm-hmm. And look where I ended up, right? Mm-hmm. Here I am, a Jesuit. So, uh, so I think it's good. I think, it's, I think questions define an adventure. Love that quote right there. Questions define an adventure. Good stuff. Okay, next up is the professor from one of the best classes I've ever taken at Santa Clara, uh, Karen Peterson Ayer, who teaches the uh, religion class titled Theology, Sex, and Relationships, which I took last spring, and I interviewed uh, Dr. Ayer. Uh, She had a lot of great stuff to say, and here she is. Compared to most... Uh, university classes and disciplines, there is just such a big focus on like the personal experience side, you know, like in almost any other, you know, business engineering, political science, any type of class, you're studying what others have done in the past almost exclusively, right? And and responding to that. But do you think there's additional value in like studying what's literally happening here at Santa Clara or bringing, like, how do you balance bringing personal experience in along with kind of studying more like these normative or historical sources? Yeah, I absolutely do think there's value. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, um, so in in the discipline of, of theology and specifically ethics, experience itself has moral weight. And, you know, when you study history, you know, history is written by the victors, right? So you have to, you in order to really understand what that history is about, you you have to think about what the experiences of the people writing the history. So, um, and it's the same in any discipline. Experience does inform that discipline. It's just that we often don't admit it, mm-hmm. right? And so when we're talking about sex, now this is a, in relationships, this is a realm where, um, unfortunately, people who have kind of minority status within sexual expression 
have been largely suppressed or ignored, right? And so, and that's led, especially in religious environments, to a lot of problems. So, um, you know, in the last sort of 50 years or so, there's been a little bit of a turn there where we recognize, okay, um, experience matters and not everybody's experience has been amplified. So, um, and if we're not amplifying and even being aware of our own and others' experience, we're not really doing an honest job, right, with with the project of ethics. So that's not the only thing we do. So, you know, we need to look at what the tradition has said, what the reasoning process is, um, you know, what what is scripture, what does Holy Scripture say? We do a little bit on that, not a lot, but, um, and then bring that into conversation with that experience, right? And what, and, and in order to do that, you have to be able to articulate it. So, um, you know, I think that we're not so bad as a culture at talking about experience, but we don't tend to do it academically. Mm-hmm. Like, as you point out, most courses, they don't ask you to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I really am a pretty firm believer that if we're not doing that when we're talking about sex, we're not really talking about sex. We're talking about somebody else's idea about sex. So, um, so we have to be aware of that. We have to, and, and it has, to, and it always comes out. You know, things like how um, women's experience vis-a-vis hookup culture is not exactly the same as it. You know, the ideal is not the same as the reality. Now, that's not going to come out until people are invited to reflect upon, wow, what's my own experience? You know, and and what's your experience? You know, and how do those intersect with each other? So. You know, it depends on the class, the particular class, how well that works. But I do think it's um, in every section of the course, I try to invite people to take that seriously. Mm-hmm. So I do in my other classes, too. Um, but in this particular one, it feels um, it just feels very, very important. Like we're not doing the project right if we don't do that. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Along the lines of sharing experiences, one of the assignments is this anonymous paper, right? Yes. Which is you know, is a unique assignment because, you know, there's no attachment to whoever wrote it. Um, And you give the option of whether or not that student wants to share with the the broader class. But I I guess, like, is there still, is there still value in writing that paper? You think if only the student writes it and then you read it and then it never sees the light of day? Yeah, yeah. Well, it does see the light of day. Hmm. I mean, that's the thing. So, yes, I absolutely think Uh there is. I, um... You know, some of the, I mean, some of the very best papers I've ever gotten, people don't want anyone else to read it. Um, I think the project of taking one's own experience seriously is really important. And, and that, that assignment is designed to do that. So, and I, and mostly I get great responses. I get people who really do take it seriously. So, you know, I ask people to really look deeply, to, to really examine their own past, to see what wisdom lies there. Um, and I think the, I think our culture really doesn't do a good job at at asking us to do that either we either we do it superficially like on facebook or instagram or something where we're just kind of projecting this image of what we want to be or or even in things like blogs you know often they're just very very superficial so being invited in some ways being invited in a private environment sort of like journaling or something yeah, yeah you know, to examine one's own experience. I actually think that leads people. It is always the thing in the evals at the end of the quarter that people like the best, mm-hmm. always, without a doubt. That's the overwhelming thing people liked. And and I think it's because it, it I'm asking people to take themselves seriously. Mm-hmm. And I don't think our culture really does that, you mm-hmm. know? And, and honestly, a lot of religious practices 
they don't really do that either. You know, some do. I don't, I don't want to say that. I think actually the Jesuit tradition in some ways is the best of the best here. Like it asks, it asks us to take ourselves seriously. But to the degree that we just think that religion is about what somebody else is telling us to do, we're not really encountering the divine at all. We're just encountering somebody else's kind of interpretation of the divine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the Jesuit tradition, um, we are invited to... It's called seeing God in all things. You've heard of this. So the idea of um, recognizing the movement of the divine in our own lives is it's actually shared in many Protestant churches as well. Not all, but many that I think is it's it's not doable until you take a deep inward look. So that particular assignment is trying to ask people to take a deep inward look, you know, and some people go deeper than others, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some people are, I mean, some of those papers are superficial, but a lot of them aren't. All right, here's a clip from an episode I did earlier this year with biological anthropologist Robin Nelson. I saw you had taught a class called The Biology of Poverty. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm just so curious, that title, you don't think of those two words as going together. Mm-hmm. So yeah, well, what is that, that class? So that class, I, I kind of love teaching that class. I will also say it is, it is not um, the cheeriest topic, mm-hmm. as you might imagine. So what that class is about is about, one, how we make real differences between communities. So we kind of start the conversation talking about how race is actually not a biological concept, but how, meaning that it's not scientifically valid, um, but how historically we have kind of made it real via segregation and different policies and slavery, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And then, so we talk a little bit about that, like how biology becomes a way of kind of understanding difference between people. Mm. And then that creates its own caste system, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. And we also talk about in that class how poverty itself becomes embodied. So who is more likely to live in areas where there are environmental toxins? Folks who are poor. What communities are more likely to experience poor sleep and all the negative effects of poor sleep, Mm -hmm. noise pollution, uh, folks who are poor, right? Mm -hmm. So we talk about all these different factors that kind of influence your biology Mm -hmm. because of your class situatedness. Mm -hmm. We talk about pregnancy. We talk about childbirth. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of, in the end, this way of kind of understanding how biology and poverty feed into each other like Mm -hmm. a loop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that can be a really divisive sort of issue, right? Because mm-hmm. if you, for example, are talking about biological differences between like men and women, yeah. then that that's kind of led to the situation we are now. And, you know, now, now there's a bigger movement to have like equal representation and at least in like businesses. Right. Yeah. But like historically, that's definitely been like a means of oppression and biology has been really linked to that. So mm-hmm. I don't know, like, how do you navigate that? debate between like equality and like scientific differences between people? That's a really, really good question. So one of the things that we talk about quite a lot in this class, and I talk about a lot in like other, in my research and things like that, is how much difference is actually meaningful Mm -hmm. and, and, and things we need to know, right? And how much 
difference is actually not, or what differences are actually not so meaningful, but have been inscribed with a lot of social meaning or cultural meaning, right? And so we often say things like men are taller than women, men are stronger than women, right? And most people would assume that those are well accepted kind of biological facts about men and women. When you actually kind of look at the science, these are overlapping normal curves, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you look at kind of men and women and how different they are in height, like around the world, they overlap quite a bit, right? Mm -hmm. So at the far extremes, you have very short women like me, Mm -hmm. right? And you have very, very tall men like a a LeBron James, Mm -hmm. right? Or a professional basketball player. Mm -hmm. But everybody else in the middle, there's actually quite a lot of overlap. And so when we start kind of talking about, okay, men and women are different, how do we navigate this? We really try to kind of get down to the the bare bones of what differences are, are kind of meaningful and useful for us to think about mm-hmm. and which ones have been given a lot of like value because mm-hmm. of kind of patriarchal practices, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I also try to kind of get away from thinking about binaries. Like we talk about... Um, kind of intersex communities, like folks don't typically think, oh, well, intersex communities, that's just a small little bit of the population, right? And I heard a researcher say at a conference once, actually the intersex population around the world is the same percentage of people who have red hair. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't necessarily think, you know, we don't think red hair, we think of it as kind of rare, but not that rare, Mm -hmm. right? And so I try to point that out to my students that these kind of binaries that we set Mm -hmm. are actually far more complicated than Mm -hmm. we think. And instead, what's going on, rather than this being some hard and fast biological truths often, are a lot of kind of social conventions and cultural Mm -hmm. shortcuts that we make Mm -hmm. to group people. Along a similar topic of race relations, here's a more recent episode I did with ethnic studies professor Anthony Hazard. In thinking about how a a, a white person in particular, or mm-hmm. any person, maybe mm-hmm. someone's a college student, maybe mm-hmm. you're a forty-year-old with mm-hmm. a job, mm-hmm. and you say, "Hey, I, I recognize racism is a problem, but I don't mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. I just live my life. I work mm-hmm. my job. I go to school. Mm-hmm. What?" What can I do in my daily life to work towards racial justice? What would you say? That's a great and timely question. (laughs) I would say um, read as much as you can. Um, Don't run away from from debates. Um, When things happen in your life, if you are, and this is an example I use in my classrooms, um, when you are at holiday dinner with your family, and someone says something that's really racist, well, that's an opportunity to engage. And the point isn't necessarily that you are going to change your uncle or aunt's mind or something, but you yourself will gain experience in talking about the problem because that that silence, right? That it, it's, it's so huge mm-hmm. um, because again, yes, certainly, Someone who might be a white person who doesn't view themselves as racist, um, but is unwilling to actually talk about the issue, like that silence is just as damaging as someone who is actively racist, saying racist things. Um, So I would say have the conversations, challenge yourself, challenge family members, challenge friends, 
educate yourself, read. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> we live because we learn, mm-hmm. right? And so it, simply accepting that you are not racist and the problem is over there, um, the, or the problem is in Chicago, or the problem is in Baltimore, um, you know, it's poverty and it's, and it's black neighborhoods. Actually, there are probably people of color in your life who are experiencing those challenges. So why not? Why not say, I'm going to challenge myself to do something? Mm-hmm. Um, but there are certainly, there are folks, I, I have friends, you know, lifelong friends who move to the suburbs, you know, their kids are doing great in their private high schools and, and there have been really tough conversations because I challenge I challenge my white friends who particularly don't engage, mm-hmm. and it's like this is it's not way over there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one day, our children and nieces and nephews are going to grow up to be adults who are involved in quote unquote diverse workplaces. And so, if we don't know ourselves, how can we help educate our children and, and nieces and nephews? Um, and it's sure you can live in, in your gated community and such and such and such and such, but all of this is happening and we can try our best. Those of us who wish to have that comfort, um, we can try to separate ourselves from these conversations and debates and realities of race. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would, I'm, I'm not a betting person, but if I were, I would wager that at some point in your adult life, race is going to touch you, mm-hmm. right? Um, and if you care about communities that surround you and this country, mm-hmm. then, you know, you might want to challenge yourself mm-hmm. to do something, mm-hmm. even if it's just the preliminary step of educating yourself, of reading, um, you know, listening to folks that you may not listen to <laughs> watch certain tv shows mm-hmm. um if you're if you follow fox news okay maybe you want to actually like check out msnbc mm-hmm. um listen to to van jones or something right just mm-hmm. make some kind of effort and i would say that that's again this is just preliminary but but it, it really has to be from within again it's mm-hmm. it's it's a dual burden or an extra burden <laughs> for black people, people of color, um, to take up this mantle of having to educate their white friends or white coworkers or white colleagues about this stuff because we're already dealing with it on a daily basis. Now some of us choose, <laughs> you know, to, to work in this field and do that work, but um, that's just some of us. Not, not every person of color is like a scholar of race. Um, so yeah, at some point, you know, white folks are going to have to challenge themselves mm-hmm. to say, okay, um, this actually matters. All right, this next clip is with Provost Lisa Kloppenberg, who's talking about the evolution of American law. Uh, how do you weigh 
maybe two sides of one, like staying true to things that have been done in the past, yeah. whether that's precedent or the constitution or whatever, versus uh, like looking forward into the future and saying like, based on our values, this is how we think the world right. should be. And even though things have been different legally in the past, we want to make a change. Like how do you right. balance those two sides? And I think that's very much um, a value driven personal choice. You know, mm -hmm. people might not like to admit it, but I think, whether you think the status quo should be or whether you're looking more toward a future, and I would think a more just future, you know, um, that, that people have preferences. So I am more of a believer in a living constitution because mm -hmm. I look back at the framers and the first constitution, women were not included, right? African-Americans are not included, right? It was really for property-owning white males. And mm -hmm. so I just think that they gave us some beautiful ideas, but even those ideas, many of them like due process, equal protection, we're at the 30,000 foot level. Mm -hmm. And so how do you make them concrete? You've got to take into account the circumstances of the day. Mm -hmm. Like what due process means for a married gay couple in California might be very different, right? Than in a, a country or uh, that didn't recognize mm -hmm. or still criminalized, you know, homosexuality. Mm -hmm. So I just think to keep the law relevant for people, to make the world continually evolving to be more just, we have to have more of that approach. Mm -hmm. um, but that was probably very influenced by my teachers and my own mm -hmm. experience as a woman and all, all that kind of stuff, even writing about Judge Nelson being this pioneering, you know, for one of the first 14 tenured uh, law professors in the U.S., first female dean, one of the first federal appellate judges, you know. Mm. So I think her, I've just written a book about her, um, mm. her life, and that I think probably colors my idea mm. of how the law needs to keep changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What would you say that the biggest uh, strength and biggest weakness of the current uh, U.S. justice system are? Uh, there's two big problems with it. It's too expensive, right? And too slow. And what that means is that most people can't get access to justice. Mm -hmm. And the burden falls disproportionately on those who are poor. So, but even middle class people today can't afford a lawyer mm -hmm. for most things they'd like to do. So people don't write wills or they don't, you know, go to a mediator and resolve things mm -hmm. before they blow up, unfortunately. So access to justice, I think, mm -hmm. is the biggest issue, but it's got several components. Mm -hmm. Strengths, I think there's a lot of stability in the system. There mm -hmm. is actually a predictability, not necessarily what a jury will do, but here's the law that's likely to apply. Mm -hmm. And that's helpful to guide conduct, right? Even at the university, we have to make decisions about, you know, lots of legal issues and, and so it helps to have like a set of laws to look to like mm -hmm. here's what's likely to happen if we do x and here's mm -hmm. why so it helps people predict behavior maybe and minimize risk mm -hmm. right or plan for risk if you're a business or a person that decides to undertake the risk then you go get insurance or you plan for it mm -hmm.
Next up is a guest that I did this interview over Skype, and I was really thankful to be able to do it because of the influence uh, this man has had on the field of behavioral economics. Here is Professor Hirsch Sheffrin. Yeah, I'd love to touch on investing a little bit too. So if you imagine a college student or a young person in their 20s and 30s, uh, they have some money, they know they want to invest for the future, but they they read the news every day and they think, oh, I don't know, I think we're going into a recession. I think this would be a bad time to invest. I might as well just just kind of wait until until later. So what are a few tips you have for young people to effectively invest? Understand why you want to invest. Understand whether you want to get rich quick or understand whether you want to build a nest egg for the future. If you want to build a nest egg for the future, ignore everything about what's happening now and simply start to put money away in an asset class that's likely to generate high quality returns over time, despite volatility. If you're well diversified and you're in an asset class like equities that historically have done well, don't worry what's going to happen over the next year, two years, three years. Most of the time, if we look, if we look at investors, if they're five years out or 10 years out, it's unlikely that you'll be behind by starting now. But if you're worried that you're going to feel stupid, which is which, which, which is the emotion you really have to be concerned about. You know, so I put money in and all of a sudden we go into a bear market and we're 20% down. You know, you put in $10,000, it's worth 8,000. You lost $2,000 in the last two months. You feel like an idiot. Well, that emotion is very strong and you kind of just have to have a conversation with yourself about what good long-term investing means. And it means being willing to risk not just losing money, but feeling like an idiot in the short term. Because the odds are in the long term, you won't look like an idiot. You'll look really smart. But you may have to wait a while for that to happen if you just happen to invest at the wrong time. Um, now, on the other hand, if your objective is to get rich quick and look really smart, whatever money that you use to do that, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. Just understand it's kind of like buying a lottery ticket and some of us do win the lottery. So you might wind up looking smart, but that money is money you can afford to lose. You have to think about it that way. It's play money. It's like money that you're probably going to spend on something fancy and fun. But once you've spent it, it's not going to be returned to you. You can actually have spent the money. So you're going to be buying the experience. And if you're lucky, you'll actually might wind up making a pile. But it'll happen mostly because you're lucky, not because you're smart. But but if, if that's what's going to give you pleasure, just understand what you're doing and be honest with yourself. 
Next up is Pauline Loxencanter, who is a faculty in the theater and dance department and has the notable resume item of being the video reference model for Mulan in the movie Mulan. So uh, basically she was Mulan, which is pretty cool. Uh, Here she is talking about the meaning of dance. Yeah, is, is there something about dance more, more generally that, that that like speaks to you, or that that led you to be so passionate about it? I don't know, as as compared to maybe other forms of like art, or like there are so many there are so many careers out there, not many people like consider dance, you know. So like I don't know, is there is there something about the art of dancing that has really just kind of like stuck with you? I don't know. Um, it, yes, it, it is the art of dancing. It's, it's the art of connection. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think one of the first shows that I had seen, uh, it was actually a Disney show and I was, um, I was at Disneyland and I remember at the end of the show, everybody's clapping and I'm bawling mm-hmm. and my sister looked at me and she goes, what is wrong with you? And I said, that was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And at that moment, yes, that was that was the you know nail in the coffin that mm. I was going to do this. Mm. I wanted to have that impact mm. on people. Um, so again, a little teary. I think about it. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. So so that was it. That that was my deciding factor. If they could have that effect on me, then I would like to do the same. Yeah. That. Well, what do you mean by that art of connection? The art of connection when when um, an audience can uh, feel something beyond what they're seeing. Hmm. So I saw if I could break down their dance steps, I saw kicks and turns and you know transition steps, but I saw the passion and love hmm. behind it. So anybody can do a kick or a turn if you're given the information right, but not everybody can actually feel it and let you feel it with them. Hmm. So. Yeah. And I think um, dance, you know, through movement and and music and acting through dialogue, you know, and song through lyrics, they all, you know, they all have their way of really, you know, touching, you know, anybody, whether you're another artist or whether you're an artist at heart or whether you're just a normal person (laughs) who has, you know, uh, uh, not like not like I'm abnormal, (laughs) but um but just, you know, something, a, a job that's a little bit more ex- uh, expected in our society. And this last larger chunk is from a more recent conversation I had with Kristen Kasanovich, who is a faculty also in the theater and dance department, as well as child studies, and was the director of uh, Turn Week this past fall, which is a climate crisis uh, awareness week. And I have heard really great things about this episode from a lot of people. And here is a chunk from that conversation. This year was the first year of, uh, of Turn week yeah so what what changed what was the impetus for starting this this movement after you've you've been at at santa clara for for so many years both as a a student and in a faculty position so yeah such a great question because i'm not an expert in uh, environmental science right um but i've i'm schooled here as an undergrad and then i've been schooled here as a faculty member and the the development that happens here if you take advantage of the amazing centers and offerings here, it's quite extraordinary over the years of your career. So I guess the, the the summary background is I went to so many great talks and it just felt like I had collaborated across like maybe 20 different departments and seven or eight different centers and units. 
So I already had a lot of relationships established and I already was thinking in a very interdisciplinary way. Mm. My research for the last 10 years has been transdisciplinary research in educational leadership, personnel management, and the arts. And so I've been putting together some really disparate fields Mm. and using theater and plays to train future leaders in schools Mm. um, and kind of substituting the Harvard case study method with a different method that Mm. me and my colleague piloted and invented and researched, Mm. um, which is to use plays instead of case studies and train Mm. people in theater techniques to learn how to gain empathy and play roles in their future business context that Mm. they'll be in. Um, So I had done a lot of work with like listening deeply to people from other fields. Right, right. When the news showed up, the news of what's going on in our planet, um, I'm because I'm not in environmental studies. I've, I've I talked to my friends in environmental studies, and they were all talking to me about how terrible things <laughs> were looking. And I knew how bad it was from their expertise. They were letting me know these things, but I wasn't feeling that this was in the general public's discourse. This real serious gravity. Hmm. And then I was reading the U.S. Geological Survey and seeing how the water line was going to rise around the bay and how San Francisco Airport was going to be underwater in like 50, 60 years. And I thought, wouldn't this be something people would be talking about? What's going on here? And then, you know, enter the children's youth climate strikes and Greta Thunberg and all the indigenous children around the world and all the other children around the world kind of rising up in the last two years. The, the school strikes really, really touched me because I'm in child studies as well as theater and dance. And I work a lot with that incredible program and think a lot about the world from the perspective of children. And so there were these wonderful opportunities for learning from people that are very young. Mm-hmm. And I listened to her speeches and it really struck me that um, we needed to do more and I needed to do more. And I wasn't sure what that was. And then I went to a physics lecture. Um, Like I said, you know, you just take advantage of what's on campus. And I went to a lecture by an astrophysicist named Jeffrey Bennett that was held last fall in 2018, um, sponsored by the physics department. And it was on demystifying global warming. Mm. Um, And when I got the physics side of it down and then I had the what was happening to children the trauma and the stress that we've put children under, that together was enough to just ignite me and say, okay, I need to reprioritize what I'm using my time doing. Mm. And then I asked a bunch of students all through last winter and spring, what do you think of the climate crisis? And they would say, oh, it's terrible. I know, it's, isn't it awful? And But I can't talk about it right now. And I asked my colleagues, like, oh yeah, you guys, can you believe all these species that are going extinct and the incredible terrible predictions of this temperature rise and what 1.5 Celsius temperature rise means. Like, isn't that terrible? Oh yeah. Yeah. But you know, I've got a lot of other stuff on my plate and a lot of issues and a lot of stuff at home and family and like, yeah. Okay. So I felt like everybody underneath, like in this subterranean level knew there was this disaster we needed to talk about, but no one felt they had the permission, the space or the time. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, that's what I can do. I work in the elements of space and time. That's what I do as Mm -hmm. a choreographer. I can create an invitation for people 
to make space and make time to sit down or stand up or march or do whatever they want to do with climate crisis at the forefront of the conversation. Not something we're skirting around, not something we're ducking, not something that we're just complaining about Mm -hmm. and crying about, you know, while we have our latte. Like it's really something that I wanted people to feel permission to feel Hmm. the emotional import the range the dynamic range of the stages of grief that we're all Mm -hmm. going through starting with denial and moving through apathy Mm -hmm. and anger frustration to finally through several more stages to acceptance and i felt like oh i'm at acceptance i get that this is happening i believe it's happening it's a situation and needs to be addressed Mm -hmm. but i was running into a lot of people that were in all the different stages Mm -hmm. Partly because of not knowing the details mm-hmm. and partly because of being in denial for, for like denial is a great place to stay. You know, just the first stage of grief. Just right. stay there. You, you never have to come out of denial. And there's plenty of people to support that for you if you're in denial about climate crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, OK, what if the university could stop everything it was doing and just talk about the climate crisis for a week? That to me would be fair for our students to graduate here not knowing about the climate crisis seemed kind of unconscionable like why would we do that to students why would we let them graduate here thinking the world is going to operate the same way it did 50 years ago Mm -hmm. or for us when we got out of here Mm -hmm. that would be just dishonest Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of what propelled me All right. Well, thanks for sticking with us through this entire episode. To close it out, we have a poem read by Riley O'Connell, who graduated this past year. Riley was uh, in charge of the Santa Clara Review uh, poetry team, and she frequently uh, performed at all kinds of events around Santa Clara. She's a great person, and this is a fun poem to close us out. So, Riley, take it away. Okay, this dog poem that I talk about in this podcast is called Puppy Love. If I had a meet and greet with every dog I follow on Instagram, several hundred dogs, yes, I'm serious, I'd hug the golden retrievers first, bury my face in their thick blonde fur, wet noses, white lashes like feather dusters. Have you seen how they twinkle in the sun? Stars, every last one of them. Maybe I'd throw a blanket over one and watch him confusedly crawl out. Then he'd bury his head in my lap and gaze up at me and pardon me. I'm free of sin. What a good boy. We'd have a ball, a tennis ball. Do you think that husky understands when I call her beautiful? Can she hear me telling you right now? Do you think she knows? I mean, look at her. So regal. She's the smartest person I've ever met. And she's got hearts for paws. Imagine her running through a meadow. Oh, wait, you don't have to imagine. We're in a meadow right now. Where else would I have this glorious celebration? It's doggone perfect. You think I'm crazy. But don't you see they're incredible? Labradors look like fuzzy potatoes when they're born. Corgis are loaves of bread on legs. Those legs, so little. Did you know I've never met a dog I didn't love, except every poodle I've ever met in my lifetime? There will be no poodles at my meet and greet. That is final. Maybe you'd like to come to my dog party. We could call it a party or a shin dog. We'll raise the woof. You'll love it. Maybe I'll even pet a cat for you or just look at one from a reasonable distance. I'll be honest, I still think they're completely infernal, but I'll allow one at my pet together. 
Look at me. No, look at the dogs. Look at their tails swishing through the grass. That's right, you can't see them because they're moving so fast. And they're smiling. Look at the canines on those canines. Look at the puppy eyes on those puppies. I love a million things, but I love them the most. I think I've seen the face of God in a dog. I'm being serious. If that Maltese there put its paw on my knee, I'm pretty sure it would legally own me for the rest of my life. You're looking at me like that again. Like I'm crazy. Well, I'm not. Just crazy about you. Yeah. You were right. There's too many dogs here. Who's going to pick up their shit? My mom warned me about this. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify so that you don't miss an episode. Check out the website at VoicesOfSantaClara.com for some shortened transcripts. And you can like the Facebook page and follow on Twitter. I'll see you next time.